Sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. So we're continuing our series through the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. And the title of today's message is The Unforgivable Sin. So last week we saw how Jesus taught the true meaning and intention of the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command was not meant to be a burden like the religious leaders made it into. Instead, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, a day when you stopped working and you look back to the rest that Adam and Eve had in the garden where they walked with God. And we also, you're supposed to look forward to the ultimate rest, the eternal rest we have with God in heaven. And since Jesus is greater than the temple, since he is uh, Lord of the Sabbath and it is in him we find our rest, his followers are allowed to do good. His followers are allowed to show mercy on the Sabbath and every day. In that teaching that Jesus taught about last week and his claim to be the Son of Man, that is, God himself, that claim made the religious leaders of his day furious, and they sought to kill Jesus for it. Jesus withdrew, we saw last week, but he continued his ministry of teaching and healing. And this week, we will see Jesus continue his ministry of mercy and his compassion, and he's bringing in the kingdom of God with power and authority, and this week, over the demonic kingdom. However, the religious leaders of his day, they already had their minds made up about who Jesus was, and they seek to discredit him. They seek to discredit his power and miracles, and we'll see that they will attribute Jesus' power to the power of Satan. In response, Jesus will show them their error and their inconsistency of their argument, and he takes this opportunity once again to warn to explain, to teach, and to show who he is. And it is in this context, this is where we find the much debated and discussed topic of the unforgivable sin. And it is in this context in which we must rightfully understand Jesus' words. For if we try to understand Jesus' statement in Matthew 12, 31, that says, "...the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven." If we try to understand that statement in isolation, if we try to separate it from its context, we will misunderstand. We will misapply, and we will find ourselves reading something into this verse, something that Jesus did not intend. So it is vital to understand the unforgivable sin in verse 31 in its context in which Jesus spoke it. Nevertheless, even with all this time of studying that I've done this week and fitting verse 31 and verse 32 in the context of the bigger paragraph, I admit this is not an easy passage. Even Augustine, one of the great theologians of the 4th century, he confessed that this may be one of the most difficult questions in the Bible. Likewise, even modern commentators such as Davies and Allison say in their three-volume commentary on just the book of Matthew, they say, as it stands, Matthew 12, 32 has no obvious meaning. You never, never find this to be a good statement when the commentator says, we remain stumped. Well, thank you. And that is from world-renowned scholars with a three-volume commentary. Similarly, another commentator, Luz, likewise world-renowned, he says, I must confess 
that none of the interpretations that I have found in the literature satisfy me. Well, we have our work set out for us. And while recognizing its difficulty, and I want us to remain humble in our interpretation, my belief that all of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. And thus, I cannot skip over this difficult passage. And while it may be difficult, I also agree with Augustine that the question of the unforgivable sin, this may also be the most important in the Bible. Because if wrongly interpreted, people may wrongly think that they are unforgivable. They may think that their sin is too great for God to forgive. I'm just going to show you my cards up front that if you feel guilty, if you feel shame, if you think that Jesus can't forgive you because of some sin in your life, if that is causing you to worry, then that shows that you haven't commit, committed the unforgivable sin. Because the fact that you have sorrow of your sin and you want Jesus to forgive you reveals that you haven't reached the point that Jesus is warning of here. And I'm not just saying that just because I want to make you feel better. I'm not just saying that to comfort you. I hope that it does. And I hope that it does lead you into the loving arms of Jesus. But the main reason I say that is because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in its context means this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means believing that Jesus was performing miracles by the power of Satan. Believing that Jesus was performing miracles by the power of Satan. So now while we'll spend the remainder of our time together seeking to explain this from the context. And I'll break up our, our passage into two parts. First, is Jesus Davidic or is he demonic? That's a title from Dr. Quarles. Is Jesus from David? Is he the son of David, the promised Messiah? Or is he working by the power of Satan? Is he demonic? That's verses 22 through 30. And then the second part we will look in is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Understanding what blaspheming the Holy Spirit means in its context. So first, Davidic or demonic? Jesus as the son of David in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. So here we have a man that was afflicted with blindness and not being able to speak by the demon that possessed him. In Matthew 9, 27, we saw Jesus heal two blind men, and they call out to him, they call him the son of David, showing that even though that they were spirit, physically blind, they had 20-20 spiritual vision, for they knew and they trusted in Jesus as the son of David, the shepherd king the one promised to bring the kingdom of God, and part of the mission of the Messiah was to bring mercy and healing. In that same Sunday that we looked at Matthew 9, 27, we also looked at verse 32, in which Jesus drove out a demon that was causing a man not to speak. And so here in Matthew 12, 22, we see a combination of both. We see the, the suffering of the man is intensified with both ailments, blindness and not being able to speak. Thus fulfilling in one man the prophecy of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. 
And just like the two responses that the people had in chapter 9, the people here respond with the same combination of response in verse 23. It said, all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? They responded with both amazement and they connect Jesus to being the son of David. Jesus is the compassionate king in the lineage of King David who on a lesser and temporary scale, King David was able to cast out evil spirits that oppressed King Saul. And here, Jesus is the greater David, the promised king that would rule on a throne forever. And in these healings, he shows both his power over the demonic kingdom and uses his authority not as a tyrant over his people, but as a loving, compassionate king to help those in need. And while the crowd makes the right connection to Jesus being the son of David, they are not too sure about it, for they put it in the form of a question. They say, could this be the son of David? And this same question is ever before us today. After all we have seen, after all you have heard of Jesus, do you believe he is the promised son of David, the one with all authority and power? Or are you trusting in something or someone else other than Jesus? Are you still waiting for the Messiah? Are you waiting for a Savior to come? Or better yet, and I think in our context, are you trying to be your own personal Savior? Are you trying to be the hero of your own life? The wait is over, and you can open your eyes to the reality that you can't save yourself. You can't live up to even your own expectations of what you think is right, much less the holy perfection of God. But God is compassionate, God is merciful full of grace and love, and maybe someone maybe brought you to church today like those who brought the man who was demon-possessed to Jesus to be set free. Like Jesus healed the man, set him free from the darkened kingdom of Satan, he can also save you from sin and rebellion, save you from the darkened kingdom of Satan. See Jesus for who he is today. Don't seek to justify your unbelief and make excuses as we'll see the religious leaders do. For they saw the very miracle we just read about, and they heard the question of the crowd. They said, is this the son of David? And the religious leaders will say, no. Jesus is more like the son of Satan, is how they will respond. In verse 24, the Pharisees heard this. They said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So the Pharisees cannot deny that Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing. He's casting out demons. They can't deny it. Instead, they attempt to convince themselves that he did so not because he was the son of David, working by the power of the Spirit of God to bring in God's kingdom, but instead they tried to argue that he's working by the power of Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, the ruler of demons. Now the Pharisees do not want to accept that Jesus is God that he is the Messiah, that he is the teacher with authority, so they try to explain away his healing power. Their presuppositions did not allow them to see Jesus for who he was. They were not willing to change their beliefs in light of the evidence. We must not make the same mistake. When coming face to face with the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, let us be willing to take an honest look and be willing to accept the truth. The Pharisees made this same claim earlier of Jesus working by the power of Satan in Matthew 9, 34. After witnessing a similar miracle, 
And back then, Jesus did not respond to their accusation. But here in the next few verses, we see Jesus point out the Pharisees' error and inconsistencies. Again, is, is Jesus Davidic or is he demonic? Jesus' reputation begins in verse 25. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So first we see Jesus has the upper hand in the argument. Not only does he know their verbal claim that he is working by the power of Satan, he also knows their very intentions. He knows the thoughts behind the claim. For again, Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows their very thoughts. And the first argument Jesus makes is one of analogy and illustration, appealing to a common custom in ancient times that people would put on their chariots a license plate which recognized the hardship that spouses will have if they're loyal to different sports teams. That's a joke. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about. The premise behind it is true enough, that a kingdom and a city or a house that is divided, that is, if they are not united, if they are fighting against each other, they are in a civil war. Those kingdoms are headed for destruction and disaster. It will be the same for Satan's kingdom if he is fighting against himself as the Pharisees are claiming. Jesus explains in verse 26, If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus is showing them at the level of common sense that their argument doesn't work. Because why would Satan be casting out his own demons, and thus by implication driving himself out of power? The Pharisees' hearts were so hardened towards Jesus, they don't even realize how ridiculous their argument is. If the common sense argument doesn't convince them, Jesus gives them a second argument by pointing out the inconsistency. Verse 27, he says, If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason they will be your judges. So apparently those in the Pharisees' community, perhaps their own disciples, for that's what is uh, likely meant by when Jesus says, your sons, that they, their own disciples, their own sons were casting out demons. And so Jesus is asking, why do you con- condemn me for casting out demons, but not your own sons? For he's pointing out that the act of casting out a demon is not wrong, but something that they should be happy about. They should be praising God for They're showing compassion, removing the affliction from the people. And they would surely have praised God if one of their own disciples cast out a demon. So the accusation that Jesus was working by the power of Satan actually opens themselves up to the same charge. And thus they would be condemned by their own sons and judges as evidence against their claim against Jesus. So after dismantling their argument, Jesus builds up, his. Verse 28. He says, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here Jesus gives an alternative. Instead of working by the power of Satan, Jesus is claiming to be working by the power of the Spirit of God. And as we saw last week, how Jesus is the prophesied servant of Isaiah 42, being anointed by the Spirit, as Matthew quotes it in Matthew 12, 18. He says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So here we also see a connection to Jesus being anointed by the Spirit. And not only is Jesus bringing justice to the Gentiles, but Jesus is bringing justice to the kingdom of Satan by casting out his demons, removing his power over people, and bringing in the kingdom of God, as Jesus mentions at the end of verse 28. He says, The kingdom of God has come upon you. For indeed, through Jesus' teaching and healings, the kingdom of God, God's compassionate rule over his creation, is expanding through the ministry. Jesus' ministry was not expanding Satan's kingdom, but he was expanding God's kingdom. And while others, like David in the Old Testament, or even the sons of the Pharisees, they could cast out demons, they were in a more limited way than what Jesus was doing. For Jesus had the special anointing power of the Holy Spirit. For again, Jesus is the son of David. He is the shepherd king. He is the Messiah, bringing in God's rule on earth. And Jesus explains his ultimate authority and the outworking of God's kingdom with an illustration in verse 29. He says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he could plunder his house. So here the strong man refers to Satan, and Jesus is the someone who has the power over him because he is able to metaphorically tie Satan up. That is, Satan's power cannot contend with Jesus' power. It is as though Satan were tied to a chair, helplessly watching Jesus cast out his demons, replacing the demonic kingdom with the kingdom of God. Satan is being vanquished, being defeated by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus, with the contrasts so far between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, Jesus presents this choice in verse 30. He says, Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is the son of David, the eternal king, leading the army of God, expanding God's kingdom. And he says, you can either be with me or you can be against me. You can be a part of God's kingdom or you can be a part of the kingdom of Satan. In the book of Matthew, we see illustration after illustration of two options, two choices. Are you the wheat that will be brought into the barn or are you the chaff to be thrown into the fire? Will you enter through the narrow gate that leads to life or the wide gate that leads to destruction? Are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? Will you act on Jesus' words, building your house on the rock? Or will you not listen to his words and build your house on the sand? Will you have Jesus stay? Or will you beg him to leave because you value pigs and property more than a human being? Will you call Jesus a blasphemer, or will you come to him for forgiveness? Will you recognize that you are spiritually sick in need of a Savior? Or will you delude yourself into thinking that you are righteous, that you are good on your own? Will you welcome the words of Jesus and his followers, or will you be left in the dust like Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you be a sheep, or will you be a wolf? Will you acknowledge Jesus before others, or will you deny him? 
Do you value your family more than you value Jesus? Do you value life of comfort more than you value Jesus? And the same is here. Are you with him or are you against him? You can be a part of God's mission. You can be a part of his gathering in the lost sheep into the pasture. Gathering in the fish of the fishers, being fishers of men. You can gather in the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Or you can be against the work of Jesus. You can be against his work to save sinners. You can be against his gathering. You can, in rejecting Jesus, he's actually saying you are not a neutral participant in a war. You're not just sitting on the sidelines. Everyone is in one of two teams. Even if you're not with Jesus, he says you're actually working against him and his kingdom. Because if you're not gathering, if you're not helping bring, bring, bringing people into the kingdom, if you're not for him, he says, if you're not gathering, you are scattering. That is, even if you claim to be neutral, even if you claim to be tolerant of Jesus' teaching, your rejection of Jesus doesn't just affect you, but affects those around you as well, disrupting the harvest of God. Now, whether you have unintentionally or intentionally disrupted God's workers in the harvest, God is gracious. For in fact, we were all rebellious. This is picturing all of humanity because we were all rebellious. We were all disrupting the harvest. We were all in need of God's grace and forgiveness. For we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. We have all been against God's kingdom. But through faith in Christ... As our God, Savior, and King, we can all be forgiven and be brought in to the kingdom of God. As Jesus will say in verse 31, as we move into our second section, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, 31. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. Now, we'll get into the second half of this verse in just a moment, which has come to be known as the unforgivable sin. But before we do, I want us to reflect on what Jesus says here. Because we cannot miss the significance and the greatness of God's mercy and God's grace to forgive sin and forgive blasphemy. Now, sin is referring to anything we do, say, think, anything that is contrary to God and His law. Jesus sums up God's law this way, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. None of us have lived up to this standard. But through Jesus' death, he takes our punishment. And we can repent of our sins, trust in him as our God, Savior, and king and be forgiven and also empowered by the holy spirit to actually love as jesus loved and back in verse 31 of matthew 12 jesus specifically mentions the sin of blasphemy we saw in matthew 9 3 that the scribes accused jesus of this sin because jesus was claiming to be god and to do something that only god can do Jesus was claiming to forgive sins. And so they said he was blaspheming. 
Jesus responded to them in verse 4 of Matthew 9. He says, Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? The thought, the very thought that Jesus is less than God, to think that he can't forgive sins, that's, again, there is no neutral opinion with Jesus here. Jesus says that kind of thinking is evil. In essence, in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, the scribe himself commits blasphemy. That is, in simplest terms, he disrespects and slanders Jesus. Because even that sin of saying Jesus was less than God, even that sin of blasphemy, and any other disrespectful or slanderous thought or speech against God, that would be forgiven. See how gracious God is to forgive sins directly pointed at him. However, Jesus explains in contrast this with the second half of verse 31. The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what does this mean? What does blaspheme against the Spirit mean? Jesus had just said that if you are not with him, you are functionally against him. In verse 30, he's already pointed out time and time again, there is no middle ground with Jesus. And so now he's addressing those who do not just claim neutrality. They're not just claiming, well, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know if he's fully God or he's the Messiah. I'm not sure yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. He is addressing people that show themselves to be in direct opposition to God's kingdom because they attribute Jesus's miracles to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. Jesus restates it this way and speaks of the eternal consequences in verse 32. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So to speak against the Son of Man, that is to speak against Jesus himself, is to dismiss him as a blasphemer, as the scribes did in Matthew 9, 3. To call Jesus a mere human or son of a carpenter, Matthew thirteen fifty five. Jesus is saying those can be forgiven. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 13, he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, he didn't think Jesus was God. He didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. He blasphemed against Jesus blasphemed against the Son of Man. And not only that, Paul was a persecutor. He persecuted those who followed Jesus. And Paul says he was an arrogant man. But he also says, I receive mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He received uh, mercy because he acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He did not believe Jesus was God. He did not believe that he was the Messiah. But he received mercy, he received grace and forgiveness. The fact that Jesus forgives even includes speaking against himself, speaking against himself, that speaks volumes to his grace and mercy. And the only exception to Jesus' forgiveness, as I will explain below, this exception does not diminish Jesus' love for sinners. But in a sense, he hands the sinner over into his sin. Because the quote-unquote unforgivable sin in Matthew twelve thirty-two, the Pharisees did not merely dismiss Jesus as a blasphemer. 
They did not say you are just a mere man, but they attributed his power to Satan and thus spoke against the Holy Spirit, thus blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. So after seeing all the miracles, hearing Jesus teach, even hear the warnings of Jesus, the Pharisees refused to humble themselves, refused to repent of their sins and follow him. Instead, they sought to justify themselves, and to do so, they called Jesus satanic. And to do so, that's to commit the unforgivable sin. Because it is likely that their hearts have been so hardened that they would never want to repent. That they would never want to come to Jesus, no matter the amount of evidence and argumentation. And this sin will never be forgiven in this age or in the one to come, for it is the eternal sin. As Mark 3.29 explains, it is, Mark 3.29 calls it the eternal sin. And as Dr. Quarles notes, it is a sin that the sinner will persist in for all eternity. It is a sin that the sinner will persist in for all eternity. They don't want to turn away from their sin. They don't want to be forgiven by Jesus. They think Jesus is satanic. They're not coming to him for forgiveness. And as one author, N.T. Wright, has said, once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. And that's what the Pharisees did. They condemned Jesus to be poisonous. They condemned Jesus to be satanic. They condemned the very living water. Thus, the unforgivable sin understood in the context of Matthew 12 and made extremely clear in Mark 3.29 is attributing Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan. As Mark 3.30 says, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's why they're not going to be forgiven. Because they were saying Jesus has a demon. Jesus is working by the power of Satan. Now, while Jesus is lowly and humble in heart, he's calling all who are weary and heavy laden to find rest in him. And he is gracious and he's compassionate. But we also see time and time again, Jesus draws a line in the sand. And he asks, are you for him? Are you against him? Even from his very birth, we see Jesus drawing a line in the sand, people reacting to him differently from his birth. We see people for him and people against him. King Herod was against him because he threatened his throne. The Magi, though, they come from far away. They come to worship him. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, and the Pharisees tried to stop him. And John, even then, warned them from the very beginning. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist warned them. He says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. The Pharisees had the opportunity to repent, but they persisted in their sin. They persisted in the hardness of their hearts to the point of no return. Jesus uses the Pharisees as an example, as, an, a, warn, as a warning to us. For he says in Matthew twelve thirty two, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, that is, those who are still considering, those who are still evaluating who Jesus is, heed this warning. 
Don't attribute Jesus' power to Satan. But also, it doesn't do you much good to stop there. Because again, there is no neutral ground with Jesus. You are either with him or you are against him. And as I've mentioned, I just want to make clear, one should not fear whether or not you have committed this sin. For to commit this sin of rejecting Christ and attributing his work to the power of Satan, if you were in that sin, you wouldn't care that you committed it. Like the Pharisees, you would persist in it, justifying yourself, justifying that Jesus is not the Messiah, justifying that he is working by the power of Satan. And the warning for us is not to make that same mistake. Now, Jesus did not intend this passage to cause people to question their salvation. Again, this is directed at the Pharisees who rejected Jesus and attributed his works to Satan. And we can stand firm on God's promise as we look to 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The same in Romans eight thirty eight. And I'll close with this. It's been so good to be reminded. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.